This is They Create Worlds, episode 196, The Sumerian Game. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we will be talking about a game. Not just any game, but an ancient game. One that the Sumerians played. Back before monorails. Back before the time of food. Back when they had this ancient Sumerian writing that I'm always told is the key to defeating the mnemonic entities. Especially Marduk. Whenever Marduk's around, definitely want to go to the cuneiform. Which one's Marduk? Eh, I don't know. This is a video game history podcast, not an ancient Near Eastern Civilization podcast. Oh, right. I'm on that other podcast where we talk about ancient demons, Sumerian text, and how we're all doomed. Don't think I'm uh, familiar with that one. Neither am I, but that's okay, because we're on this podcast where we want to know more about what you told me to tell you about before. Some sort of Sumerian game, which I can only assume comes from ancient Sumeria. Well, I think it's more uh, fair to say it's loosely about ancient Sumeria, but sure, whatever. It's from ancient Sumeria. I, I don't care anymore. That's right. We are going to look at one of the very, very earliest computer games of any kind that was created, and certainly also one of the very, very, very first educational games created, and quite possibly the very first game designed by a woman. That being the Sumerian game, created by the Westchester Bosis in the mid-1960s, and later adapted by a deck employee into the more well-known game today of Hammurabi. Okay, so we have one of the ancient mainframe games that got converted and passed along into the somewhat modern era. I'm going to guess probably influenced quite a few people. Yes, it may have single-handedly created the German uh, computer game industry. You hear that, Germany? You owe them a debt. (laughs) The other interesting thing about it is, unlike the other games from this era that persisted into uh, later times, like Star Trek and Lunar Lander, it actually predates time-sharing or at least the widespread adoption of time-sharing, and was not originally created as a time-shared product, which makes its spread even more remarkable. So how did it come about? As far as I know, which isn't much, because, you know, I do cursory research before this, she is a teacher, came up with wanting to do a teaching program. We're going to have to start a, a little before that, Jeffrey. Oh. We have to start by talking about one of your favorite subjects. School. You liked school, right, Jeffrey? I got my education there. That's right. I'm learning. That's very good, Jeffrey. Very good. To understand why the Sumerian game came about, we first have to understand a few key things about the state of education in the United States circa the beginning of the 1960s. This was a period of some challenge for the education system in many parts of the country, because ever since the late 19th century, there had been an expansion in 
primary and secondary education to cover a wider variety of subjects and to split schools into departments and not just have a teacher teaching everything, but have your teachers that are experts at math and science and English and all of that stuff and get a full, well-rounded education. This is a movement that obviously started in urban areas where there was a greater concentration of people and thus also a greater concentration of funding. But it spread from there to small high schools in more rural areas and other more disadvantaged areas throughout the first part of the 20th century. However, it was becoming increasingly hard for rural school districts to keep up with these advances. These are places where, for the longest time, you didn't even necessarily have a lot of students going to high school. A lot of education ended at the eighth grade, or even sooner, or students didn't attend full-time because they had to help out on the farm. Now we're getting to a period of time where that kind of education is becoming more common in rural areas to go on to high school, more as it is uh, even still today. As school populations expanded, the money wasn't necessarily expanding at the same time. The faculty wasn't necessarily expanding, and these rural schools were starting to have a real problem keeping up with schools and urban centers in terms of providing a quality education. They did not have the money for it, quite frankly. In a period starting kind of in the late 1950s, you started to see a consolidation in rural school districts in the United States. You had a lot of districts eliminated. You had mergers to create larger districts. You also had the creation of cooperative organizations, co-ops, essentially, between school districts. The reason for this is that the more entities you have involved, the bigger the geographical reach you have, the more tax revenue you're taking in, and the more money you have. And this was all about the money. What these co-ops did is they allowed for individual school districts that are normally, through local laws, reliant on their own revenue that they raise, primarily through property taxes, to fund everything that they're doing. It allowed individual districts to combine their resources for larger purchases or larger initiatives that no individual school district in the cooperative had the money to undertake themselves. There were limits and guidelines and all of this stuff on how you could, on what kinds of projects and what kinds of items you could spend such money on, because these are still separate school districts with their separate tax bases and separate school boards and all of that. But it was one of several avenues to allow for more of that kind of spending on a bigger scale. The other thing going on in this time period is that the U.S. has become deathly afraid that they are falling behind the Soviet Union in technological superiority and technological know-how. This is right in the midst of the space race, and more specifically, this is right in the midst of the part of the space race that the Russians were primarily winning. Specifically, Sputnik. Yes. This concern started even a few years before that, but a real turning point was 1958 with the launch of Sputnik, the uh, first man-made object launched into orbit. 
which set off a panic at the highest levels of American government. There were a lot of steps taken. A lot of things came out of this. But one of these was a new focus on federal funding for educational initiatives. So in 1958, we got a new law called the National Defense Education Act. One of the main legacies of this law, which is still in effect today, was this was the beginning of the concept of federal student loans to attend college. That's not the portion of the bill we're focused on today, but that is probably its greatest, longest-lasting legacy, for better or for worse in some cases, is that it was the beginning of the whole idea of student loans. But before Sputnik, there had been a real resistance to the federal government spending anything in education. This act was a total overhaul in a lot of areas. It didn't just provide funding for college education for college students. It also provided funding kind of all up and down education from elementary education all the way on up to postgraduate education. One of the things that it put an emphasis on, one of the titles of the law, was specifically devoted to the idea of funding research projects in computer-assisted instruction. Because in the same period, there was a thought that the computer could eliminate some of the problems that were being seen in inner-city and rural school districts, where lack of funding, lack of qualified teachers, lack of solid curriculum was putting students in these areas at a disadvantage. We have a rural school system. It's not a single, like, system, but rural school systems that are really struggling. We have a new push by the federal government to start funding some educational initiatives in the name of not falling behind in the space race. And we have the computer starting to be introduced in college courses. And a group of educators starting to wonder if perhaps what's going on in college courses, where there are business simulations that are being used primarily to help business students by simulating markets that students are running businesses in or producing products in and then simulating all the economic factors around their attempts to market a product, what if this kind of instruction could be adapted for secondary or even primary education. Now, the big hurdle there is money, because at this point, computers are still ridiculously expensive. But with the federal government getting more and more involved in funding educational initiatives, and specifically even looking at funding computer-assisted instruction specifically through the National Defense Education Act, there seems to be an opening to make this happen. Into this mix comes a specific educator by the name of Dr. Noble Givedin. His first name is actually Noble. I don't name him, I just report on them. Dr. Givedin was a superintendent of a district in Westchester County, New York, in upstate New York, a rural district, and was also heavily involved with the Westchester BOCES, B-O-C-E-S. It's an acronym. I think he was in charge of it. 
but even if not in charge of it, he was highly placed with it in addition to being the superintendent of one of the school districts in Westchester County. As I said, the BOSIS is one of these co-ops that was designed to allow school districts, in this case school districts within Westchester County, New York, to pool their resources for larger initiatives. Dr. Giveden had done a lot of research and a lot of work on the decline of rural schools and how to reverse that decline. He knew about these business games, these computer simulations that were being used in colleges, and he thought that could work. This could be the answer for the problem we have with high-quality teachers. If we can concentrate the majority of instruction into computer work, that would free up the teachers to pay more specialized attention to both the students that were falling behind the class and the students that were way ahead of their peers. Because his idea was not that computers could replace teachers in the classroom. Far from it. He was an educator himself. He believed very much in the value of human teachers. But the idea was that if most of teaching is rote stuff, learn a unit, read something or get something read to you, answer some questions, memorize, wash, rinse, repeat. If that's what most of education is, which I think it's fair to say at that period of time, that was what most of education was. There's certainly not the same today, but we're talking in the context of the early 1960s. Then the computer can do all of that, and the teacher can provide a more personal touch and more engaging or useful material to the students that need it most, both the ones that are challenged by the material and the students not challenged enough, and thus solve some of the resource problems that you see in these rural school districts, if that makes sense. I think so. So the idea is to have a computer program or a computer setup that is geared toward teaching the baseline, the median, the average student. While that's going on, the teacher observes the class, sees what's going on, keys in on, okay, these students have problems. I can give them some extra help. Hey, what are you not understanding here? Okay, here, let me run through that again. Let me do whatever. And the ones who are not challenged at all, oh, yes, we covered this at home last Sunday. Then here's a more advanced version of that problem. Right. I believe Dr. Giveden would have thought in a perfect world, you know, it'd be nice if a teacher could give all those students that attention, but it just wasn't possible anymore. Because, of course, another thing going on that I didn't mention before is this is also the baby boom generation. Not only do you have curriculums getting more sophisticated, needing more teachers to teach specialized subjects, but you have one of the largest generations, if not the largest generations of school children in the history of the country, suddenly entering the schools in this tsunami. The infrastructure just isn't there for them because this has never happened before. The baby boom generation is such an outsized bulge demographically that no institution in the United States that deals with a large cohort of people is ready to handle the sudden influx. I mean, it's broken everything as it's gone along. No offense to baby boomers. It's not their fault. It's just that they were born, but it broke the education. It broke elementary schools and high schools first. Then it broke colleges. Then it broke certain job things. Then it broke social security. Now that they're getting older, it's going to break nursing homes and other medical professions. There are just so many of them compared to the generations that came before them that every stage of their life as they move through it 
as they enter a new stage, they come up against another set of entities that are not ready to handle how many of them there are. You'd think the other entities would see the failing entities and go, maybe we should prepare for that. Well, I'm sure they do as best they can, but the thing is, you can only hire as many people as you can afford to pay. I mean, if you're running a nursing home and you have a smaller generation, you can only pay staff to look after those individuals. And then as the demand increases, then you have the money to hire more. So, I mean, there's only so much you can do in advance. But it's a real problem. So that's another problem that's going on. So Dr. Givenden's like, what if the computer could be the answer? It just so happens that Westchester County is the county where a little city called Armonk, New York, is located. It just so happens that Armonk, New York, is the global headquarters of a tiny little company that some of our more learned listeners may have heard of called International Business Machines, or IBM. I don't think anyone would have heard of them. I mean, we didn't dedicate two episodes to them, so obviously (laughs) nothing ever came of that company. That's right. So in this same county where this computer-interested or computer-curious educator resides, is the largest computer company in the entire world. In addition to their corporate headquarters in Armonk, Westchester County is also home to IBM's Advanced Systems Development Division, which is in Yorktown Heights, which I believe is even the same city where the Westchester BOSIS is located. BOSIS, by the way, I mentioned it was an acronym, but I didn't tell you what it was an acronym for. did not mean to leave you in suspense. It is the Board of Cooperative Educational Services, B-O-C-E-S. Naturally, Dr. Gividen, in 1962, approached IBM and said, I've got these ideas about using computers in the classroom. Maybe we should look into this. Not only was IBM interested, but it just so happened at their Advanced Systems Development Division, which, as I said, was also located in Westchester County, there was an individual that was kind of almost as interested in this problem as Dr. Givenden was. His name was Bruce, spelled with an S because he's weird like that, not with a C, Moncrief. Bruce Moncrief came to computers in an interesting way because his degree from the University of Illinois was not in any kind of technical field at all. It was in philosophy. That's not as big as a leap as it may sound, because, of course, one part of philosophy is a little subdiscipline called formal logic. I remember that. Formal logic does have just a little bit to do with the way computers work. Things like and statements, or statements. A, therefore B, not A, therefore not B, and then logic tables of doom. They don't call them logic gates for nothing. Logic is actually one of the disciplines of philosophy. It's not all just sitting around and theorizing about the nature of stuff. Some of it is actually very practical. I don't know if Bruce's focus was in logic, but even if it wasn't, he would have had a lot of logic instruction as part of getting that philosophy degree. So they don't just sit around and try to become Vulcans or something. No. They are also engaged in formal logic, which is practically mathematical in its approach to things. 
And then after he got that degree, he went on to the University of Chicago and Harvard to get advanced degrees in education. He had an educational background as well. Starting about 1947 or so, he became very interested in this brand new thing that was just coming into existence, the computer. He's long dead, and he was never really interviewed, so I don't know exactly how he first came into contact with computers. But since he was at Harvard, one of the very earliest computers, which was electromechanical, was the Harvard Mark I. Harvard was a major center for computer research, and of course it's in Cambridge, the same city as MIT, which also became a major center for computer research. So I have to imagine that it was through Harvard that he first came to know of computers, but I don't know that for certain. I just know that 1947 is very early to be interested in computers at all, but Harvard was already deep into computers by 1947, so it's not much of a leap to assume that's what happened. But he became very interested in the relationship between the computer operator and the computer user. He wasn't so much necessarily interested in using computers himself, though I don't think he was disinterested in it. But as a good philosopher, he was more concerned with the why questions and whatnot, and the how questions. How does this relationship work? So he started to work for companies that had computers so he could observe this more firsthand. He moved to California to work for a company called Garrett Corporation. Then he became a consultant at Prudential Insurance Company. Insurance companies were some of the very first corporations to adopt computers because those actuarial tables for life insurance do not calculate themselves, my friend. So insurance companies were very early on the computer bandwagon. Then he moved on to the Rand Corporation, the famous think tank, which did all sorts of stuff with computers, including some of the very first computer war games and other computer simulations. At Rand, he got to use IBM computers because they used IBM computers there, some of IBM's earliest mainframes. They were a little late getting in, as we talked about in our IBM episode, but they were in computers by the beginning of the 1950s, and so he got to work with a, an IBM 702, one of their first two mainframe computer models big mainframe computer models. His observations, according to one of the few testimonials we have from him from the proceedings of the Western Joint Computer Conference in 1956, was that the human-computer interaction was a very awkward one. It didn't really make sense to have humans operating computers, both because they were a bottleneck, the computer works faster than they do, and also because they are more error-prone in terms of making mistakes. Obviously, computers are very error-prone, see blue screen of death. But in terms of making mistakes, when a computer makes a mistake, it's only following its programming, and usually the bugs are the result of the human screwing up its programming. <laughs> it's poking me in my brain. So he didn't, right, so he didn't really see the human as being integral to the computer operation process. He felt that instead that the human should interact with the computer in other ways and kind of stay in traditional exclusive realms of humans, such as, you know, just maintaining the machines, keeping them in working order, making use of the results that the machine gives them. It should be an aid to greater human capability rather than something that humans are necessarily fully working hand-in-hand -hand with to operate. 
this, uh, along with his educational background, also got him very interested in the idea of how computers could be used as instructional aids. As he put it in one interview that he gave in 1962, remember, this guy's a philosopher, so he sees the world differently in some ways. He's probing at the world, testing the world, and coming up with new ways of looking at the world, which is really a lot of what philosophy is about. He said, The teacher is, after all, only an audiovisual device with blood in the veins into which various information has been programmed. She simply repeats it to the pupil. This is the process we could automate, then. The teacher's role would be as a guidance specialist to decide what particular phrases of a subject the student should study, and to relate those subjects to others. So that's a bit of a reductive look at a human being, and I think a bit of a reductive look at the teaching profession as well, though he does have a degree in education, so he does know a little bit whence he speaks. But his idea is the teacher is basically like a computer. Input goes in, input goes out. Results disseminated to students. Why should we have the slower, less efficient, and more error-prone human being being that computer when we can have a machine be that computer? Think of it this way. It's almost like watching a lecture today, or if you engage in, say, the Khan Academy. Mm -hmm. You are just watching something, effectively a computer, play back information to you, and then you try to absorb it and take tests. I can understand with this philosophy here, it makes sense. If we reduce the teacher to the teacher has knowledge in them, that they are just rote spitting out to the student, we don't need a human involved, or at the very least in the case of video lectures, do it one and done. Keep playing back that information ad nauseum, and then the teacher can better focus on where do these students need help. Absolutely. That's kind of where he saw the role of the computer. And again, this dovetails pretty nicely with where Dr. Gividen saw things. He began collaborating in 1957 at the Advanced Systems Development Division with an individual named Wolfgang Kuhn, who was a music professor at Stanford, because at this time he was still in California, he wasn't in New York yet. They applied some of his theories to music instruction teaching of sight singing and diction, identifying pitch and tone and figuring out how to improve it, that kind of thing. He did that for a few years. And then when Dr. Gividen came calling to IBM, he got involved with this project. They kind of had an informal kind of meeting, and then they decided that they would do a summer workshop. They had the meeting in June 1962, and they decided that they would put on a summer workshop in July and August of 1962. Bruce himself, as well as two other IBM employees, James Deneen and William McKay, would lead this workshop, along with another educator by the name of Richard Wing, who was the curriculum research coordinator for BOSIS. So the four of them got together, held this in July and August of 1962, and they invited a group of 10 teachers from various Westchester school districts to be a part of this session. One of those is the heroine of our story, one Mabel Addis. 
Mabel Addis was born in Mount Vernon, New York, in 1912. She was an incredibly bright student. She was the uh, valedictorian of her high school. She proceeded on to Barnard College, where she was a history major, specializing in ancient history and the classics, and was incredibly interested in becoming a teacher. Graduated in 1933, attended Columbia University, and attained a master's degree in education. In 1935, she attained her first teaching job, where she had 12 students, grades 1 through 8, in the one-room Putnam County Schoolhouse. This is how a lot of schools were back in those days. You still had a lot of the one-room schools, one teacher teaching all of the grades, just moving back and forth between them, that kind of thing. Two years later, she moved to a different school, a Hyatt Avenue school, and then finally she moved to the Katona-Lewisboro School District in 1950, which was one of these school districts in Westchester County. She primarily taught fourth and sixth grade. Her specialty was social studies. That's what she taught. She was very interested in keeping her students engaged. She was not just one of these, as our friend Mr. Moncrief put it, audiovisual devices with blood in the veins. She was not just a lecturer, a rote learner, stuff in, stuff out. She really wanted her students to become involved, and so she did a lot of classroom activities. There was a profile on her in a local newspaper in 1976 when she retired. She was a school teacher until 1976, and when she retired, there was a nice little profile of her in the local newspaper. And it said that teaching the fourth grade and sixth grade social studies, she combined her background in classics and interest in drama by sponsoring Greek games annually for many years with students reenacting the ancient Greek myths and joining in an updated Olympics using skateboards instead of chariots. As curriculums changed, the games became a Viking feast and dramatization of Norse legends. So she was very into participation and having fun as a way to reinforce the learning of concepts like Greek or Viking mythology. On about 1962, when this was going on, her daughter was getting ready to go to college, which was going to take more money. So Mabel actually took a summer job working for the Westchester Bosis as a way to earn a little extra money, which is why she was one of the educators at this workshop in 1962. During this workshop, what they did is they workshopped, after all, it is a workshop, eight different ideas for types of curricula that could benefit from computer instruction. We don't know what all of these were, at least from the sources we have. We have a brief overview report that mentions the workshop and mentions that the workshop was to explore the possibilities of the simulated environment mode as a method of instruction. That's a direct quote. And it says the 10 teachers from the public schools of Northern Westchester began the study of eight learning units for which individual tutoring could be provided through the aid of audiovisual equipment controlled by a computer. So we don't know what all of those units were, but we do know that one of those units was a unit on economics as told through ancient Sumerian history. Ah, there she be. 
There she be. Now, there's a little bit of confusion or unclarity around who exactly came up with the idea of doing this and to what extent, specifically the Sumerian unit. In his report on the entire project in 1967, Richard Wing, the uh, BOSIS curricular research head, said that the idea to do Sumeria came from Bruce Moncrief, the IBM philosopher that was part of leading this workshop. Specifically, he said, The idea of constructing a computer model of the ancient Sumerian civilization and using it for teaching basic economics came from Bruce Moncrief of IBM, who in turn was inspired by Rousseau and Dewey, philosophers, because of course Moncrief's a philosophy guy, a paper by Richard L. Meyer entitled Teaching Through Participation in Microsimulations of Social Organization by the Parlor Game of Monopoly and by Other Experiences with Simulation and Gaming. He also gives him the credit for even coming up with the term simulated environment to describe this virtual world that the uh, students would be participating in. I'm more struck by him calling Monopoly a parlor game. That sounds like either a trick you would have a magician do or something like (laughs) you have men in fancy jackets smoking cigars, drinking whiskey, and playing cards. Right. We have to remember that this is the 1960s and these are older people that would have been coming of age even earlier in the 20th century. The parlor was the room in the house back in the day that was similar to what we would consider a den or a family room today. It was the room where people gathered for entertainment, such as playing card games or board games, etc. So it's a bit old-fashioned of a way of saying it, but it does make sense within the context of the times. It seems that the overall idea came from Bruce, but we have to assume that Mabel Addis, who would ultimately end up writing the game, that came out of this workshop, because this workshop was just a brainstorming kind of thing. We have to assume Mabel had some input as well, because Mabel was a student of ancient history. Ancient Sumeria would have been something very interesting to her as well. We know that the reason that Bruce said that he wanted to do a game based on Sumeria is because at this time, the ancient civilizations weren't really taught in school very much. These cradles of civilization, there was an ever greater understanding after archaeological work in the first part of the 20th century as to how civilization developed in places like ancient Sumeria, modern-day Iraq and Syria, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. But high school and primary school education hadn't really caught up with that yet, and so Sumerian civilization was kind of ignored. According to this telling, Bruce figured they could kill two birds with one stone. They could introduce students to the concept of this early cradle of civilization and, in a very abstract sense, how civilization developed. Then also teach them a little bit about economics at the same time, on a very basic level. Because this is targeted at primary school students. This isn't targeted at high school students. Mabel would have been very aware of all of this as well. The interesting thing is, is that at this workshop, you know, they didn't have a computer to work with because the BOSIS hadn't procured one yet. This was just a brainstorming session. But during this workshop, they did kind of create a mock-up of the game with a teacher substituting for the computer, and they called this the Sumerian Play. Basically, they came up with a basic economic model idea that you would be farming grain, harvesting grain, 
using grain to feed people, storing excess grain for lean times and to grow your population. They came up with this basic model, then kind of had a student run through it while a teacher basically served as the computer. They did some development work at this workshop on it, too, as primitive as it was, and I have to imagine that Mabel Addis was involved in that, both because she also knew about ancient Sumeria, she was tapped after this workshop to be the one to develop this and turn it into an actual computer program, with the help of a computer programmer, because she didn't have any talent in that area. Also, she's the one that liked acting things out with her students. It makes sense to me that even at this early stage that she must have been somewhat involved. Wing gives Bruce Moncrief all the credit for the idea, while giving Mabel Addis all the credit for writing the instructional version of the game. Does Bruce get all the credit because this is a period of time when men get more credit, just naturally? Or was Mabel more involved in the idea generation? I don't know. Honestly can't answer that. My thought is that it was probably Bruce that had the initial germ of the idea, but I wouldn't be surprised if working with Mabel at this workshop didn't help develop it further. Either way, they came out of this workshop with an idea of what they wanted to do. They identified out of these units this Sumerian game as the one that showed a lot of promise. So at this point, they applied for a grant from the Cooperative Research Branch of the U.S. Office of Education, which was the predecessor to the Department of Education, first established in like 1867 or something like that. But it wasn't the Department of Education until much later. It's just the Office of Education. They submitted a request for $96,000 to create this program. I think a lot of that probably went towards procuring the computer because they did not have a computer. Their grant proposal was approved. Cooperative Research Project 1948 officially commenced in February 1963 and lasted until August 1964 during which time Mabel Addis, in conjunction with an IBM programmer by the name of William McKay, created the first version of what became the Sumerian Game. At this point, we should probably stop and say exactly what the Sumerian Game was. My help. Which is a fair point. The Sumerian Game is a text-based game. It is an instructional program, so its primary purpose is to educate rather than entertain, so they want it to be engaging, but they also want it to be educational. It's a multimedia simulation. It's not just the computer program, though the computer program forms the heart of it. It actually starts with a slideshow. So a student is taken to a room with the computer, and they're shown a slideshow with narration that kind of gives an overview of ancient Sumerian civilization and basically cites you in the simulated environment, as Bruce Moncrief called it, which is that you are the ruler Laduga I of the Sumerian city of Lagash. It is your job to grow and expand your city and make it successful and profitable. The game is divided into three phases. Phase one, which is the one most people will be familiar with because it's the only one that is adopted into the later Hammurabi game, as we will get to in a little bit, you are starting with a very small agrarian society that is starting to grow grain. What you do in this segment of the game, you start with an initial supply of grain, and you have to determine how to allocate it. You can use some of it to cultivate. 
You can plant it and grow more grain. You can use some of it to feed the people. And then you can store the rest of it for future seasons. You're given your supply. You decide how to allocate it between these three things. Then time passes. Random events occur that may affect your food supply for good or ill. Natural disasters and the like can happen. Rodents can eat things, etc. Then in the next turn, you're given the same three options and you keep doing this until you have done this uh, rigmarole for a predetermined number of rounds or until your population reaches zero, in which case you have failed the game and you get the message, your population has decreased to zero. Do not go on. Call the teacher. Ooh, you're in trouble. But it's all good. It's all a learning experience. Well, little Johnny, you have killed an entire civilization. Go to the principal's office and explain why you killed civilization. Interestingly enough, too, and this dovetails a little bit into what we said about SimCity, the other episode as well, in later reports about the game after it had been created and everything, you know, a small number of people played it, mostly children, but also sometimes adults. And uh, one news article reporting on this said that when adults played, they seemed to take it as more of a challenge to see how fast they could starve out their entire population rather than grow their population. Just as SimCity players love those disasters, building up the city and then destroying it. Why do we always want to destroy? I really don't know. Either we just like to bring chaos to order. (laughs) We're like the Joker. Right. But I just thought that was interesting that adults tended to like to sabotage their population and starve everybody rather than, than stick to the game. So this teaches you how agrarian societies were able to grow after they figured out the process of cultivating crops and storing crops for future use. And you have to kind of figure out the best economic model through a trial and error method for how much to allocate to growth, feeding, and storage to grow your population. After that, you reach the second stage where you are Leduga II, Leduga II now. Each stage, you're theoretically a different monarch. You have to start investing in technology as well. In this one, they get rid of the grain storage. You still have grain as a resource, but you don't have to fiddle with it anymore. Instead, you have to allocate your labor to different tasks to keep the city running, and then how much of your grain surplus you want to invest in new technologies, which then improves the functioning of your labor pool and, again, grows your city. So it's this idea that once people were able to feed themselves, then they started to be able to divert their attention to other works and to more technological advancement, and then civilization expanded even more. This was a smaller section, about 10 rounds. Then in the third section, where you played Leduga 3, you have the most complex set of options of all, because now you're starting to erect great works to improve the infrastructure and the education and the lives of your citizens. You're investing in roads, canals, and schools, building up infrastructure and education. Now you're starting to trade your surplus food in addition to all the other things you need it for, like feeding the people. You also need to trade for construction materials to use to build these new infrastructure projects. And you have to start dealing with raids by other city-states, barbarians, whatever, 
and therefore have to allocate a portion of your manpower and your resources to military as well. Now, there's no combat. All of this is just input variables, see results. But it's just like, you know, you have X number of soldiers, you are attacked by X number of enemies, you had too few soldiers, and they were able to pillage your city. Just like the earlier business simulations that this is kind of building on, it's all, we have a set of fields, we input variables within those fields, and then the computer calculates what happens both based on the impact of your variables and based on the impact of random events generated by the program. That's the game. And through the process of the game, which can take hours, one article on the game discussed that, generally speaking, and this was a later version where they had tweaked some of the lengths of time of the various parts of it. So this was uh, over a three-week period, two hours, two days a week, and about six two-hour sessions total, 36 years of play. You went through this entire process with the civilization, and you had those cutscenes. They're not literally cutscenes because they're not within the game, but they function very similarly to cutscenes where you have these introductory slideshows. Then you do a round, do another round, you do another round, and, and you hopefully emerge successful. But whether you succeed or fail, you learn a little bit about how certain advances built on each other to create civilization. Excess food led to excess labor led to the ability to construct better infrastructure, which led to an easier time doing labor, which led to more excess labor, which led to more expansion, etc., etc., which led you to become so big that you were coming into contact with other cities, and so now you also had to defend yourself. And it's just kind of a very rudimentary way of showing step-by-step how a civilization might have come into development. We don't have an exact timeline of when this game was developed. We know that in that 1962 workshop, the basic parameters were worked out based on an idea by Bruce Moncrief that other people at the workshop, including Mabel Addis, probably had some input into. Then we know the first phase of the project lasted during that 1963-1964 period, and we know during that time Mabel Addis was working on the program with William McKay, the IBM programmer. We know that after that initial grant ran out, they were able to get a second grant, this time under Title III of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which was a new law that had just been recently passed as part of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program, signed into law in 1965, and offered grants to districts serving low income students for all sorts of funding, for textbooks, library books, special education centers, scholarships for low-income students. This was all part of his war on poverty and his great society plan to lift people out of poverty was this Elementary and Secondary Education Act. And since the Westchester schools were in a rural area, there were lots of low-income people there, IBM headquarters notwithstanding. So they were able to get a second grant. So the initial work on this program was completed, as I said, between February 1963 and August 1964. There was then a pause after that, and then they received their second grant in June 1966 through the Elementary and Secondary Education Act to basically build a center for the demonstration of computer-assisted instruction. Because like I said, this bill wasn't about specifically computer instruction, but this one specifically was for things like education centers. So they were able to get a grant to create an education center 
for the demonstration of computer-assisted instruction. They were able to keep this going. Their grants were extended a couple of times after that before they finally ran out sometime in 1967. Mabel Addis was involved in the 1966 revisions. She did those in the summer after they got the new grant. Completely rewrote the script for the first ruler, reduced the number of rounds to 30, condensed the messages. I think they're trying to make it a little more time management friendly. Graphs and charts were also included as part of the review materials. So, you know, you do the game and then you have some review of what you just learned by playing the game. They created new graphs and charts to go with that. So even though a computer program is at the heart of this, it's a multimedia experience. There's a slideshow with narration. There's a computer game. There's charts and graphs and other visual learning aids for reinforcement. It's kind of this multimedia before multimedia in a way. The programming part of it at this point, they didn't have the IBM people anymore, but a graduate student from John Hopkins, Jimmer Leonard, then took the first segment of the game and reprogrammed it on an IBM 1401 at John Hopkins. If I'm following the report correctly, once he did that, that program was then transmitted to the BOSIS from that computer at Johns Hopkins, where they had terminals at the BOSIS, because by this time, time-sharing has become a thing. It's hard to tell with the resources we have, but I believe at this point, for the most part, the game becomes focused on just that first segment. Now, we do have some articles from the time vaguely describing it that discuss the game in such a way that it's very clear that students are playing all three segments, not just the first one. But I think this is the point where the focus gets shifted to just the first segment of the game. They had plans to rewrite the other sections as well, but I don't think they got very far in that or were able to complete that before their funding ran out. I'm not positive about that. I'm speculating a little bit, admittedly. But I know that in January 1967, when they reported out on their progress, they were just starting to contemplate doing a revision of the third section of the game. It wasn't long after that that their funding ran out. I wonder if they ever got around to it, and it's pretty clear in this report as well that at this time, the part that they were focusing on was the first part, the part that was just the grain, the stocking and eating and planting of grain, because that's the part that had been revised most heavily. So that's kind of the creation of the Sumerian game. Work first being, you know, initial brainstorming, 1962, initial game creation, 1963-64, revisions, especially to the first part of the game, but I think throughout as well in 1966 and 1967. In terms of how many people got to play it, we don't know exactly. They did have that computer-assisted instruction center at the BOSIS facility in Yorktown Heights. We know they conducted demonstrations of the game there. We have newspaper articles that talk about that. We do also know that they advertised it to other educational institutions, and they did offer it for sale. We have some examples of some catalogs from back in the day, some computer software catalogs that include the Sumerian game and say that it is available through special arrangement with the Westchester BOSIS. So we don't know what they were charging for it in every case, but they know, we know they were selling it. 
We know some schools used it because I also found a newspaper article in the Philadelphia Inquirer from the late 1960s, 1968, I think, that discussed the Sumerian game being used at this suburban Philadelphia school district. It was played a little bit, and it was known in educational circles, but it wasn't very widespread. I take it then that none of these copies survived to the present day. Not that we know of. I mean, there could be something deep in the archives of the Westchester Bosis or of the Westchester School Districts or something like that, but we don't know of any surviving copies. There is a printout of a playthrough of the game. Of course, this would print out on teletype. This was before you had widespread computer monitors. There is a printout of a playthrough of the game that has survived that the Strong Museum of Play now has. I think they have some of the slides as well from this presentation. So we know what some of the slides look like, and we have a playthrough. So we kind of have an idea of what was going on, but we don't have code. We don't have a way to recreate the game. If it still exists, it is buried deep in some archive someplace. It would have been entirely forgotten if not for the intervention of a gentleman by the name of Doug Dimit at the Digital Equipment Corporation. We talked a little bit about this in our timesharing episode. As timesharing developed, one of the major centers of timesharing was Dartmouth, where BASIC was created. Timesharing at Dartmouth was all based around the idea that everyone was going to need to use computers, and so computer education is of paramount importance. So we not only want to build a timeshared network within our college, we also want to build a timesharing network that extends to high schools as well. Throughout the 1960s, the mid-1960s, there had been a growing networking of high schools and even, in some cases, primary schools to mainframe computers through timesharing. It wasn't universal. It tended to be in pockets, but it was happening. Timesharing was expensive because you had to dial in to a timesharing service. You're doing this all over the phone lines. In addition to whatever you're paying to lease the terminals to dial into the computers, you're also paying the cost of dialing into those computers. And if you're in a big city that's lucky enough to have a local computer offering time sharing, that's a local call. Still expensive, but not nearly so expensive. But for many, it's a long distance call because the computer they're dialing into is not in the area they are. Kids, remember, we're talking about a time not like today where you can call almost anywhere in the world and still cost the same amount of money. Right. Or at least anywhere in the country. At least anywhere in the country, yeah. It used to be back in the time, up until fairly recently, about the 90s, early 2000s, where it cost significant amounts of money to call anywhere outside of your local exchange. Long distance was by the minute, and it was not cheap. This was very expensive. Schools usually had to turn to grants and other such methods in order to afford this kind of thing. As companies like DEC were developing the first mini computers, cheaper computers that were still very robust in their functionality, they realized that there was an opportunity for them to seize the education market by going to these schools and saying, look, you're paying all of this money for long distance to go into a timeshared mainframe, and you're at the mercy of whatever that company wants to do with their mainframe. They could decide they don't like you anymore tomorrow and cut you off. Instead, you can buy a mini-computer from us with its own built-in timesharing software. So you control the environment. You will have the computer in your own offices. 
it will be time-shared, and your students at your various schools will be able to dial in locally to access a computer that you own and have complete control of. This is going to cost you maybe a little more upfront, but this is much cheaper than a mainframe. It's within reach if you pool your resources through cooperatives, get grants, whatever, and then once you have it, you have it. High upfront costs, small long-term costs. DEC pushed very hard into the education market and even created their own programming language similar to BASIC called Focal that was designed for computer instruction and ease of use very much the same way BASIC was and started packaging their PDP-8 mini-computer in an educational package. And they made great inroads into that educational market. And because they were doing that, DEC also became very interested in advances in computer education and learning more about computer-assisted instruction and all this stuff, because this was now one of their markets. So their employees were starting to attend educational conferences to learn about stuff going on in the world. So one DEC employee by the name of Doug Diamond, as I said, attended an educational symposium at the University of Calgary on using computers and instruction. And afterwards, he talked to a woman that told him all about the Sumerian game. We don't know exactly who this woman was. Doug Diamond is still alive. He has been interviewed by several people, including Kate Willert and Devin Monin, both of which have done copious amounts of research into the history of the Sumerian game. His memory is not great on this. He remembers it was a woman. He thought it was a grad student, but he also is certain it wasn't Mabel Addis. It's not like Mabel Addis was randomly at a conference in Canada and told him about it. We do know that the University of Calgary was a center for computer education research, which stands to reason, considering that he was there attending a conference on all of this stuff. And we know that in their uh, computer department, there were two individuals named Herbert Hallworth and Anne Brebner who were leading a project in computer-assisted instruction. And we know that they were familiar with the Sumerian game because we have a report from their activities dated January 1969, a lot of educational stuff, since their reports to governments, their public domain, and a lot of them are online and freely available. We have a report on their work where they are working on a DEC TSS-8 system. They've been working on computer-assisted learning and simulation They say in this report, using Focal, we have already written several programs to give drill in arithmetic. We have also written a version of the Sumerian game, devised by IBM and the Westchester School Board at Yorktown Heights. Now, this is a little later. At the time we're talking about, which is early 1968, I don't think they've written their program yet. But this just goes to show that they were aware of the Sumerian game. Maybe they went to a demonstration at Yorktown Heights because we know they did demonstrations. Maybe they ordered a copy because we know that it was available for purchase. But we do know that somehow, some way, they were familiar with the program. We think there's a high degree of likelihood that the woman he talked to was Anne Brebner. She was not a graduate student, but that could be misremembering on his part. But she was intimately involved with the computer work going on at Calgary with education. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was Anne Brebner that described the game to him. And I wouldn't be surprised if the only part of the game that was described to him was the first part, 
It could be that she described all three parts, but I have to wonder, with the information we have on how they were really revising the first part and not necessarily focusing as much on the second and third, whether the only part that he was described was the first part. But again, that's speculation. There are gaps in our knowledge of this story. We do know that he thought that that was very interesting. He thought that this would be a great program to kind of work in focal and kind of figure out all the ins and outs of focal as kind of a test program for getting as big a program as possible into the smallest memory version of focal, which was 4K. He thought this would be a great exercise in getting an educational program into just 4K of memory. So he recreated just based on this being described to him. He never saw it played. But just based on this game being described to him, he recreated it in focal in 4K of memory. That meant that he had to scale it down. So like I said, maybe he only heard about the first part, or maybe he scaled it down to just the first part because he only had 4K of memory to work with. Don't know. Either way, though, he recreated the game, but decided to name it after the more famous Babylonian, not Sumerian, same part of the world, different group of people in a different time period, Babylonian ruler Hammurabi, though he misspelled it with one M. Either misspelled it or left out one M because of restrictions in word length, name length. Don't know which, but spelled it Hammurabi with one M, even though Hammurabi's supposed to have two Ms. So that's how we got Hammurabi, which was basically just that first phase of the Sumerian game. Grain, people, plant grain, store grain, feed people grain, population grows, etc. The only difference is I don't think you can ever fully fail. There's not a full lose state. You can only get down to one population. You can't get down to zero. It's always one person left. The same idea as the first phase of the Sumerian game, and so that was Hammurabi. Now, it was in a deck programming language, Focal, and it was in a wider circle because lots and lots of people used deck computers. The Westchester BOSA setup was just a setup that they made for themselves, but lots of people have deck computers. And there's also a robust market in the trade of deck software because deck was a very hardware-focused company. Uh, as with most computer companies at the time, didn't see much value in software, and to keep their costs down, I imagine, didn't develop much in the way of their own software. So there was already a very robust tradition of sharing DEC software, and there was already a user group called Decus that was a file-sharing organization that put out a newsletter and kept a catalog of programs. This was all quite legal. This wasn't piracy because no one had assigned much value to software yet at this point. So this wasn't software that you were paying for otherwise. It was all above board. So Dimit put his version in the Decus newsletter probably sometime around the middle of 1968, probably around June-ish. We don't know exactly, but another friend of the show, Dale quarter past, did some forensic digging and based on program numbers and catalog release dates, etc., figures it was probably somewhere around the middle of 1968, very early in Focal's history, because Focal was only created earlier that year. So that spread that way, and through this it came to the attention of David All, who we talked about in our time-sharing episode, who was running DEC's educational initiative and would collect interesting and useful programs to disseminate to schools that had DEC computers. And so he published Hammurabi in BASIC. He was the one guy at DEC who wasn't getting on the focal bandwagon, which was DEC's attempt to create their own alternative to BASIC. All converted it into BASIC and included it in his landmark 101 BASIC computer games. 
which we talked about on our time-sharing episode, a huge book that was responsible for the dissemination of all of those classic games that still remain in memory today from this time period, like Lunar Lander, like Star Trek, and like Hammurabi, which got widespread dissemination in this way. So Hammurabi was one of the first games that computer hobbyists, computer enthusiasts, became aware of when they started buying microcomputers in the late 70s. So like Star Trek and Lunar Lander, it just became one of these games that spread from computer system to computer system. And then other people would make their own versions of the game, changing the setting, changing the time period. There were games in medieval period, like Prince, the creator of Lunar Lander, created his own version called King. There was a Renaissance version that also included some light, very light city building aspects called Santa Paravia in Fuimaccio, created in 1978 on the TRS-80 by a Presbyterian minister in Pittsburgh named George Blank. And in the mid-1980s, there was a version called Kaiser, set in the Holy Roman Empire, that was distributed by a German company called Ariolasoft, that, according to another friend of the show, Karl Kuras, who is German and runs the video game newsroom Time Machine, was basically one of the first extremely successful games made in Germany, German-made games, and kind of set the stage for the whole tenor of their industry, which was always far more focused on simulations and economics and all of that kind of thing than others. It's also definitely something that Sid Meier played. It had the smallest of influences on civilization. One of the main ways that it influenced civilization is something that Diamond added that was not in the original, is that when you were finished, when you finished all the rounds and accumulated your final population total, based on your success, you would be compared to leaders in history. So you would be compared to individuals like British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli or Thomas Jefferson if you were very successful, or people like Emperor Nero and Ivan the Terrible if you were not very successful. Those of you who have played the very first Civilization game, Sid Meier's Civilization, may recall that in that one, at the end of the game, you were given the score based on how you did, and then you would be compared to a leader in history, depending on how well you did. I remember that. So we certainly know that Sid Meier took at least some influence, had to have played Hammurabi, and took at least some influence from it when creating Civilization. There aren't a lot of direct influences we can point to. I mean, there, there are the direct clones like Kaiser or like King, and, and there's something like this with Civilization. There's not a lot of other direct influences that we can point to, but certainly just the very idea of doing some kind of economic simulation or doing some kind of simulation of a civilization growing and expanding, some of that germ of that idea was planted by Hammurabi, because if you were involved in computer games at that particular period in time, just like with Star Trek, just like with Lunar Lander, you almost certainly saw Hammurabi at least once in your life. It was that pervasive in the early days. It all goes back through that convoluted chain to Mabel Addis, the first female game designer at the Westchester Bosis. That is quite the story, and it is a real shame that we lost so much of the history of this from people just throwing the materials away, losing the game code, losing a lot of the supplementary materials. 
I can only hope that somewhere, somehow, something survived somewhere. You would think something like that would have survived. Yes, but for the longest time, this connection wasn't even known. Not in modern times. I mean, obviously, it was known way back in the day. A lot of credit has to go to Devin Monins, who I mentioned before, who wrote a paper that he never published, to my knowledge, but he was the first one that I know of that connected the dots between the Sumerian game and Hammurabi and figured out that chain of custody. Because even David All, David All always credited in 101 Basic Computer Games where programs came from, but he didn't know where Hammurabi came from. He knew a deck employee had created it, but that's all he knew. He didn't even know the deck employee. So it was hard to even figure out who did Hammurabi. And then once it was figured out that Diamond was indeed the one who did Hammurabi, it was hard to link that to the earlier Sumerian games. Devin did a lot of that initial work. And then I did include the game and a lot of that information from Devin's paper in my book. And then in terms of widespread knowledge on the internet, Kate Willard at Critical Kate is the one that published an article on the web compiling the information that Devin and I had already found and including some of her own research on top of that as well to kind of bring that story into the public consciousness for the first time. We're lucky we even have what we have. 10, 12 years ago, we didn't even know this much. And so it could be that another 10, 12 years from now, something is discovered in some dusty old archive and we learn a little more. Who knows? So kids, go check out those ancient computer labs in your old school and hope you find some sort of floppy disk with this program on it. What will we be discussing in our next episode as I find some more grain to grind up to make my bread? Now, of course, two episodes from now is going to be the first of our three-parter on handheld gaming, the entire broad history of that, which is something that we will create in live stream somehow <laughs> on October the 28th of this year at 11 a.m. Central Time. You can adapt that to whatever time zone you live in. We do have one episode before that, though, so while we all want you to tune into that, we also have to discuss what's coming up before that. I think since we're doing handheld games there, we've done the ancient days here, I think it would be a, a good idea to dive a little more into one of the uh, true landmark companies and uh, their true landmark games, which is uh, id Software. Now, we sort of did an episode on that already. Yes, Doom. Yes, but it was a little bit atypical from our standard format because we were doing it in kind of talking about the book Masters of Doom and relating things through the telling in that book. In this past year, John Romero has released his autobiography, Doom Guy, which provides a little more insight into this time period. So while we already have a very interesting episode that goes into Doom a bit through Masters of Doom, I think returning to id Software more broadly, not just focusing on Doom, but returning to id Software more broadly and incorporating some of the new revelations that come out of John Romero's new book would be an interesting uh, way to go next week before we dive into the handheld craziness. So remember, next episode, you're going to have to halt there and proceed on to learn more about id and all the crazy that became before and after Doom. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. 
You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roller Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.